One Week Season. Inner Circle fam, welcome to week three, our third live session. So a couple quick notes before we get started. First note, if you were not live last week and you listened to just to the podcast, apologies for the strange audio quality. We didn't drop an explanation on that in the pod, but uh, we had some issues with the recording. So if you listened to the Friday or the Saturday pod with X and Hilo, um, obviously it sounded normal and this one should as well. So back up and running and just want to apologize for that last week. I was not recording from underwater. It was just some technical difficulties. Next thing is just a quick welcome to all of the new Inner Circle members and congratulations on getting in on the early bird price. A couple quick notes for you guys and actually for all of you on Inner Circle. One of our goals, one of my goals with Inner Circle is essentially for you to pay for your Inner inner Circle subscription every week. For this single session to pay for your Inner Circle subscription. Now, this is important. That doesn't necessarily mean you are paying off for Inner Circle subscription with your winnings from that week because not every week is going to be a winning week and and not only that the approach that is going to maximize your income over time requires not every week be winning week so on mondays i record a podcast with scott barrett from twitter and from fantasy points uh, most of you probably follow Scott, I say that because he's got over 70,000 followers. And one of the things that Scott mentioned on this last podcast was a an example from a book that he was reading. I think it's called The Tao of Finance. I might have that title incorrect, but it was basically this idea that to summarize it, it's better to lose money a thousand days in a row, lose a dollar a thousand days in a row and make $8,000 on the thousandth day than it is to make a dollar thousand days in a row and then lose eight thousand dollars on the south thousandth day but most of us are so conditioned to those small rewards it's part of the reason why things like social media are so addictive is because there are these mechanisms in our brains that these small rewards push us toward certain behaviors uh, I noticed that the I've only been to Top Golf one time, but I I you know people love Top Golf, and the first time I went was it was eye opening as to why it's so popular because it's just, you're there for two hours and you're constantly being rewarded with points and with you know all these little things that is gamifying what you're doing, and so people like those little small rewards at a time. And that's part of what gives us our edge in DFS is that people are going to consistently make the decisions that give them those small rewards over time. And I've talked about this already this year, but basically what happens is if you keep minimum cashing or finishing in the top 12%, occasionally in the top 8%, 
what that does is it reinforces for you the idea that you're playing DFS correctly. You're able to look at your roster and say, okay, I got these six things right. And if if I change this one thing on my roster, it would force me to go here with salary. And oh, look, I could have gotten these other things right. And then I would have gotten all nine spots right. And then you calculate the score and you're like, oh, I would have had a third place finish. I would have had a first place finish. But that underestimates the difficulty of getting nine things on a roster correct. That underestimates the the exponential difficulty added when you go from getting six things right to seven things right to eight things right to nine things right. So that's why we talk about putting yourself in position with your roster building structures and approaches to where you need fewer things to go right in order to get multiple spots on your roster right. So whether that's betting on a game environment or if you're building a roster block, say you're building nine rosters and you're building around a couple games and you're taking you know these players from this game on this roster and these players from the same game on a different roster and you're kind of saying, look, I'm going to bet on this roster a bunch of different ways. Uh, just giving yourself those ways where you can say, if this one thing goes right, I'll get a bunch of things right. I'm actually going to sidetrack a little bit here too and talk about a really interesting strategy. It doesn't come up super often in NFL, but just from a mindset and approach standpoint. Jumpahoo, who I think he writes NBA content for Numberball now. I'm not totally sure. But Jumpahoo was somebody who I started talking to through MLB and NBA play when I was at Roto Grinders. Jumpahoo, I, I would study his NBA rosters because he was so frequently finishing near the top of high dollar tournaments. And then he reached out to me in the spring of the next year, picking my brain about MLB stuff. And it was like, oh, hey, I know who you are. I study your rosters. Uh, we kind of became friends after that. He did some writing for Rotor Grinders for a little while when I was running premium content there. And I, again, I think he's with Numberball now, which is Jeff L. Hefe's site, but not 100% sure. Anyhow, uh, what Jumpahoo would do in NBA, he would basically take one high total game, typically not the most popular high total game, and he would build around it in two very distinctly different ways. So he would take a game where he's basically saying, this game is going to have a lot of points. And rather than trying to guess on one roster where those points are going to come from, I will build one roster that bets on one way this game could come together and a second roster that bets on another way this game could come together. And one of those rosters would typically finish near the top of the tournament. And one of those rosters would typically finish near the bottom of the tournament. So again, looking for those ways where you can say, I need fewer, looking for those little hacks, those DFS hacks where you can say, if I do this, I maximize my chances of winning and minimizing the amount of guessing I have to do, the amount of work I have to do, where you're saying, okay, I'm going to build around these couple spots. And if I get, you know, if I get it right this way, this roster is moving up near the top. If I get it right this way, this roster is moving up near the top. Um, so again, we'll talk about that over and over again throughout the season of looking for ways to give yourself fewer things you need to get right in order to get those first place finishes. Uh, but from a big picture thinking standpoint, the more often you're kind of on that cut line for cashing, the more often, whether that's in cash games where you're just finishing, you know, 55, top 55%, so you don't make money. And then next week you finish up 45%, so you barely make money. Uh, or whether it's tournaments where it's like, oh man, I just barely cashed. But if I got these few things right, then I could have gotten a first place finish. Or I just barely didn't cash. And you keep ending up in that place. Well, that probably means you're pretty clumped up with the field and doing a lot of what the field 
is doing. And I've talked about this before, but Cubs fan talks about what he calls the barbell approach, which is he wants rosters that, as he puts it, are either all the way to the right or all the way to the left. So when you're on the DraftKings or FanDuel app and it has the standings and you have your little arrow of where it is in the standings, instead of having a bunch that are right in the middle, which feels good, right in the middle or in that you know top 30% to top 15% range, which feels like you must be doing things really well, instead saying, I would prefer to have rosters that are finishing in the top 2% or in the bottom 2%. And so I tweeted today in kind of a little promo for what we were going to be talking about tonight that so far through two weeks 40 percent of my rosters have finished in the top 20 percent of tournaments so most people would look at that and say oh wow that's a really good thing you're doubling the expectations of the field but if i look at top five percent finishes now, granted, 15 rosters, which is what I've put in so far, there's a very small sample size. Two weeks is a very small sample size. But if I look at the top 5% of finishes, I don't have more than 5% of my rosters in the top 5%. If I look at the top 2%, I don't have more than 2% of my rosters in the top 2% of tournament fields. What I have is a bunch of rosters that have been finishing in that 10% to 20% range. Now, in week one, there's it's kind of like when we see everybody jump onto a player because he had a big game. And you can look at it in context. How was that big game produced? Well, tipped pass that he caught and ran for 70 yards ownership with right so uh, in your own results same thing you need to understand how those results came together week one like i said i was a favorite to win the juke until the fourth quarter of the late games so i had at least one roster that was set up to do really well it was set up for a first place finish but especially this last week in week two i had a lot of rosters were in good position for cashing but no rosters that were in good position for a first place finish. So I'm able to look at that objectively and say, okay, well, this was probably never going to be a first place finish week for me because something like per cup at 20% ownership, when, you know, if I look at it and say, what would his ownership be if he disappointed in week one? Well, it would be nowhere close to that, right? Nothing fundamentally changes in his role on this offense, in the way this offense is run, in the matchup, so on and so forth. But just because he had a big game in week one after pricing had already come out, he's going to be massively popular in week two. If you played Cooper Cup, that doesn't mean that was a bad play. As we say, popular plays are popular for a reason. They're good plays for a reason. And you have to eat some chalk as long as you're building differently and giving yourself a path to first place. But I'm able to look at this last week and say, okay, no matter what, I probably wasn't getting first place because for my Cooper Cup's going to be cut up my list relatively early in the week. And I'm going to be looking for ways to leverage that Cooper Cup ownership. Uh, I ended up looking for ways to leverage that Higby ownership, leverage that Robert Woods ownership with uh, several Daryl Henderson rosters. And it wasn't that I was betting that Daryl Henderson's game. It was Hilo and Zanamir talked about this on their Saturday show. It was just that if percent of rosters, we're going to have a right. And the Rams are probably putting up points one way or another in this game. Well, if 50% of rosters are going to have Higby or Woods or Cup, which is pretty easy to, to lay out those numbers because as Zandamir and Hilo noted on Saturday night, Stafford was projected at 3%. The cumulative ownership of these three pass catchers was projected at about 50%. Well, most of these people are not taking Robert Woods and Cooper Cup on a roster 
and not Stafford. So in other words, if Stafford's going low owned and these pass catchers are going high owned and we're not getting a ton of concentration of two Rams pass catchers for roster, or in other words, this ownership is spread out across an actual 50% of the rosters being played. So I played Daryl Henderson and I said, well, if Daryl Henderson gets the touchdowns, if he gets 30 points, not only am I getting those points, but I'm I'm taking a different running back than the field is taking, and I'm actively taking away points from these other guys. Um, so, you know, there's ways to look at that, and that was kind of how I played that spot. If you played Cooper Cup, that's just as fine, as long as you did something different in other spots. But this last week was never going to be a first-place week for me, but it could have been much closer to a first-place week than it was. So I'm going to talk about why I approached week two the way I approached it, why some of the thought processes for it were really sharp, even though they didn't work out, were really sharp in retrospect, but then also some of the things that I could have done differently. And so this isn't like a, and I think a lot of our Tuesday sessions will will sort of be like this, right? Where we're going to focus on the week behind us because it, that can be super instructive for understanding how to handle different situations as we move forward. It's the reason why uh, so many of you talked about being disappointed when I stopped doing roster reviews when we first launched OWS a few years ago. And so this is kind of an even better approach than a roster review, which is basically a a whole strategy breakdown. And that was kind of what uh, I hated about the roster review structure. But since we've kind of grown what we talk about on OWS over the years and started focusing so much on strategy, this type of discussion becomes really cool because we can see what we did, why we did it, what was right about it, and what was wrong about it, and also how we're able to assess what was right and wrong about it independent of results, which is one of the most difficult things for us as DFS players to do. One of the most important things for you as an individual DFS player to understand. Um, And actually, before we get into that, I say as an individual DFS player, one of the most valuable things you can have in DFS is some people you bounce thoughts off of throughout the week. Um, I'm looking at Zandemir's avatar as I say this, and I can picture him nodding as I say this. Uh, That was how Sonic kind of came to the attention of us as far as like, hey, let's bring this guy onto the team, was because he's one of the main guys that Zandemir has talked to for years about DFS stuff throughout the week. Um, Cubs fan, I have a buddy, Pat, who might be in here listening right now. Um, some other people who kind of bounce ideas off me. Mike and I have, Mike Johnson and I have started talking most weeks. We were two weeks in, so each week this season. But having those people who you can talk through things with and recognizing you're not looking to totally change what you're seeing or what you're thinking, you are looking for additional perspectives. So obviously as an inner circle member, you have the Oracle for that as well, which the Oracle has been unbelievably valuable for me, right? Like I, I've written the player grid by the time the Oracle comes out. And then I go through the Oracle and I see, okay, who do I want to add to my player pool and then sort of mess around with things. And maybe, maybe most of those players get pulled back out, but a couple players stick and it ends up kind of giving me those different perspectives. So since you're in Inner Circle, since you're on OWS Discord, since Inner Circle members all have green names, so it's easy to identify them, just pay attention in chat to who is talking about things in a way that sort of vibes with you and start making connections. You know, send PMs to different people that are OWS members and start forming those little, you know, prep communities. And in fact, uh, Roto Maven and I even talked this offseason, it was maybe in June or so, and threw around ideas about how we could kind of 
plug people in with other members who have a similar play style to them or kind of approach things the same way as them and, and connect people in such a way that, um, connect people in such a way that they can find somebody who helps them. Uh, Zanamir just sent me a text and asked if he could hop on stage real quickly. So yeah, Zanamir, you want to raise your hand or be invited to be a speaker? I don't know how all that works. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'd love to get you on up here. Yes, there we go. Aaron, help me out if you, there we go. All right. <laughs> We got Xanamir muted. We'll figure all this out, guys. I promise you. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to keep talking. Oh no, I'm going to keep talking until we figure out how to get Xanamir uh, muted. Okay, Mike isn't working on his laptop. So once we get that figured out, I'd love to have Xanamir uh, hop up and and talk on some of this as well. And uh, yeah, so basically that finding people that you can bounce ideas off of. Um, so I'll jump back to what we were going to be talking about, which was a um, week, this last week. So one of the arguments that could have been made this last week was the Cowboys-Chargers game was going to be popular enough. This is I'm going to talk through this just insofar as helping you to see how I assess a slate and how I approach things in terms of what is the sharpest way to attack this slate, what makes the most sense. Because as we always say, every unique slate is different. Now, if you were doing one-on-one -on -one coaching with one of us, as we've said, like we would use half of the week for stuff like this. You and I would sit down and we would talk about DFS strategy, DFS play. You would ask questions. We'd work through things. And then we'd use the second half of the week to actually build rosters together and talk about the strategy of the slate. So that's why we've structured Inner Circle this way and why Xanamir and Hilo are on on Saturdays to specifically not talk about plays or picks, but specifically break down the strategy for that week's slate. So you have that help as far as uh, Saturdays, these guys coming in, answering your questions, talking through the strategy. Uh, that's another thing that's been helpful for me is listening to Zandamir and Hilo on Saturdays and just getting that extra perspective and seeing, okay, what might, what might I be missing? We all have a finite amount of time, a finite amount of brain power. Uh, Zandamir's here. Zandamir, I'll bring you in in just a sec. Uh, but finding those, those ways that you can say, okay, what's a little thing I might be missing? What's an angle I might be missing? Uh, so I will get back in just a second to how I broke down this last week, because I do want to also give you guys those tools that Tuesday through Thursday, Friday, whatever, you can be breaking down these things yourself and starting to understand how you see things so that by the time you read the Oracle and listen to Inner Circle on Saturday, you're adding kind of supplemental knowledge and idea of using that as your foundation and broke down this last week's slate and why I approached it the way I approached it. But uh, first, Zanamir, uh, let's have you hop in and speak on what we were talking about before. Yeah, thank you. I heard you mention, you know, talking to other players. And I just want to like second, third, and fourth that. I will tell you that in my experience, content is great. But being able to discuss the content with people and bouncing ideas off each other is far more valuable, um, at least for me. And when I started in DFS and then joined, the first DFS community I joined uh, was Al Zeidenfeld's Discord. Um, and I met some folks there uh, who were super sharp. And I, I, we ended up making a separate Discord and we started bouncing ideas off each other there. And now we're here. Um, and, and like 
in my in my mind at least having someone who can challenge your thinking and say, well, have you considered this? Have you consider that? Like, uh, it's, it's so easy to kind of go down this rabbit hole of like your own path and then get into like confirmation bias where you have a hard time kind of challenging your own assumptions. Um, so, you know, this Discord community is, at least in my opinion, I think it's more valuable than all the content OWS can write. And I don't mean to undersell OWS by any means, because you need some baseline of like what you're going to talk about. But like the community is really what takes it to the next level. And so, yeah, like, participate talk to people whether it's in the big channels whether you you know find a couple people that you gel with and, and trust and, and just bounce stuff off them separately like uh talking to other dfs players is incredibly valuable that's all i got yeah and also you specifically said challenge your thoughts and that was exactly what i was going to say before you said that was the biggest value is and so you have to have a baseline of what your thoughts are on the site how you're seeing the site what you think the strategy is on the slate because otherwise you know you guys always ask like how do you sort through all the noise and get down to kind of your core thoughts for the week well i think a lot of times the approach ends up being you start from hearing all the thoughts and then you try to figure out what you think based on that but if you can instead sort of use that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever it might be to be focused on thinking through the games, thinking through the strategy for that week, the macro strategy. And it might be, you know, you might only get 30% of your thoughts kind of locked in and then you start bringing in new stuff because you're still getting your feet under you of how to do this and so on and so forth. But the, the idea of like, taking your thoughts and then challenging those from what other people are saying, that's where you get so much value from paying attention to what other people are saying. Uh, and that actually ties into something I'm going to talk about a little bit deeper into this session as well. So I'll save that for then. Uh, so this last week, how I viewed the slate. And again, this is to say, I want you to be able to use the end of the week to challenge your thoughts as opposed to using the end of the week to say, okay, this is how I should approach this slate. Because ultimately what we're trying to do here is turn you into great DFS players. And great DFS players don't start from a baseline of what everybody else is saying. Great DFS players are going to start from a baseline of how they're going to attack a slate. But I also want you to keep in mind, like when we say turn you into great DFS players, that's not just something we're we're randomly saying. Um, it's, it's, I can't tell you how many, like when I worked at, at Rotogrind, you guys know I'm sort of a bubble player. So I didn't really know who everybody was. I didn't know how long they'd been playing DFS. I didn't know when they joined the Rotogrinders team compared to me. When I took over premium content and I was kind of communicating with these guys on a, on a day-to-day basis, there were I have six guys, including a couple Millie Maker winners, who the first time they talked to me, they were like, oh, yeah, like I first started learning DFS from your stuff and Bale's stuff. And so it's cool to be chatting with you right now. And you guys know Blenders said the same thing. And, um, you know, we have so many, even the guys who are writing for OWS got started as, as OWS members. And so I, I say that to say, like, this is not just pie in the sky type stuff to say, turn you into a great DFS player. This is. There are things that I'm really bad at in life, right? And then there are things that I'm good at, just like all of us. Some of the things that I'm good at overlap really nicely with what we're trying to do here. Uh, I've always been good at teaching. I've been good at explaining things. Uh, and that's something that I've had a lot of practice with for a long time, right? Because I taught SAT and GRE prep. I've taught 
you know, at these DFS events and so on and so forth. And so I, I want you to recognize like the expectations, the quote that I've used from Mike Johnson so many times about higher achievement is accomplished in, in the presence of higher expectations. Have those expectations like, okay, I am actively becoming a great DFS player. That's the goal here. And so how do we enter the end of the week with a clear understanding of what we think is the best way to approach the slate? So let's take this last week where we had all these high total games. We talked about it a bunch. We talked about it in the angles email. We talked about it on the site. Hilo talked about it. I talked about it. All these high total games is kind of the story of week two. So here's how I looked at it. The most obvious game, the game likeliest to hit was Cowboys and Chargers. So I'm thinking, okay, well, this is the likeliest game to hit. So one way to play this is to fade this game and go to one of these games that's a little bit less likely to hit, but it's going to draw lower ownership. That was where we got into this point where I started realizing that you know, one of the things I talked about late last week was you can't really go beyond these five games for stacking, right? It was it was Miami and Buffalo, and we tracked those numbers as far as what they those games had done in the past, and Tampa and Atlanta, and obviously you have the concerns about Matt Ryan and that offensive line against the Tampa pass rush, but lots of shootout potential there. We had Tennessee, Seattle, which was just one point lower than Dallas and the Chargers. It was a 54-point total versus a 55-point total. And then we had Arizona and Minnesota, who obviously we know that both of those teams are capable of shootouts. So my first thought was, okay, here's five games. We don't typically have that many games with high totals. So I don't want to go to this sixth game or this seventh game, because if I do, I'm progressively lowering my chances of getting a game that shoots out And it's not like there's one popular game that could miss and now getting this unpopular game right shoots me past everybody. There were five games that could hit. So probabilistically, one of those five games is going to hit. Probabilistically, two of those five games are going to hit. And what we ended up seeing was three of those games ended up hitting. So if you're going to that sixth game, that seventh game, that eighth game, all you're really doing is giving yourself a lower shot at getting a game that hits. And then if it does hit, you're already assuming that one of these more popular games is hitting. And so you're just keeping pace. And that was where I talked about, you know, where is the fragility of the chalk build, even though the running backs were great in were great plays on paper, the Najee Harris, Chris Carson, the mid-range running backs. You had to say, well, this is the clearest place where the chalk build could break because one of these shootouts is going to hit. If I take the seventh game on the slate and somehow guess right and it hits, but I still have these two chalk running backs, I'm not gaining anything. I just made it tougher on myself to get this big score from the shootout. But what I also was seeing was with five games likely to hit, if I go to Minnesota and Arizona, still probably one or two other games hitting. So I'm just keeping pace with those games. So what I wanted to do was say, look, if there's going to be three games, two or three games that hit this week anyway, and we're going to be clumped up regardless, and I'm going to Minnesota and Arizona or Seattle and Tennessee and and probably Dallas and the Chargers hits. That's why everybody was on it. And so now I'm just keeping pace with those rosters from taking a lower likelihood chance of a game hitting. So what I ended up doing was taking six rosters that were built heavily around that Dallas and Chargers game, and then taking two rosters that were built around Tampa and Atlanta, one with Tom Brady, one with Matt Ryan. Uh, I then also recognized that that was going to be one of the lower owned games with shootout potential. So I pulled several plays from that game onto other rosters. I had, I think Mike Evans was on five of my rosters. Um, I had a little bit of Chris Godwin, a little bit of Antonio Brown. And, um, and then I had, uh, 
Pitts on five rosters and I had Ridley on one or two rosters. So basically saying I'm going to bet on this game to try to be my differentiator on my Cowboys Chargers builds. Where I started making mistakes, if I could go back and do it again, I would still build around that Cowboys Chargers game. But what I would probably have done is overstacked the field on the on the rosters that I built with the Cowboys and Chargers. And we talked about that last week, right? Like don't just take three players from this game, take five players from this game. Bet on this game combining for 75 points and being the game you had to have because that's where the edge is going to be. So overstack that game, but only on three or four rosters. So in other words, overstack the field's exposure on the rosters where I'm building. Don't overstack the field's exposure also by like building around this on six out of eight rosters on 75% of my rosters. Because in the tournament, there's probably... 20, 25% of rosters built around Cowboys and Chargers. So now on my Cowboys Chargers rosters, yes, I'm gaining an edge on the other Cowboys Chargers rosters by overstacking, but then I also overowned in terms of total number of rosters being built around that. So a better way to give myself a shot at first place would have been to say, okay, on my Cowboys Chargers rosters, I'm going to overstack this game, but I'm only going to focus three or four of my eight rosters here. And that would have allowed me to build two around Tampa, Atlanta, and then two around Arizona versus Minnesota or around Seattle and Tennessee. So that was kind of where my mistake was, was that I overrated the certainty of that game hitting and then overexposed myself to that game to a point where if I could go back and do it again, obviously hindsight being 2020, I would have limited my exposure in terms of total number of rosters being built around it in order to give myself some extra paths to that first place finish. Because again, it's okay to have a barbell at the end of the day. It's okay to stack another game that fails if you're saying, well, this if this game hits and Cowboys and Chargers disappoints now. Now I'm also giving myself a different roster that's in position to hit based on that. Uh, last note I'll make here, and this is just from a process standpoint of how I evaluate these things, was one of the reasons why I, I finally did end up settling down with Cowboys and Chargers as the game that I was sort of overexposed to was volume. And in fact, Zanamir and Hilo said this on Saturday night, you know, volume, they rate higher than matchup. And so the Vikings, we know it's rare that one pass catcher is going to get double-digit targets. The Cardinals, it's rare that anybody besides DeAndre Hopkins will get double-digit targets. And he's priced as a guy who gets double-digit downfield targets, whereas he more gets like 8 to 11 short to mid-area targets. Uh, the Seahawks, we know, are rarely going to give somebody double-digit targets. The Titans, we know, are rarely going to give somebody double-digit targets. The Bucks, we know, spread the ball out to all these different pass catchers. And Calvin Ridley is going to get double-digit targets more often than not this year. But with that Tampa Bay defensive line bearing down on the Atlanta offensive line, I was a little bit concerned about his chances of actually getting double-digit targets. If we go over to the Dallas and Chargers game, was easy to see. It was easy to paint a picture of Amari and CeeDee Lamb both getting double-digit targets. And so that was kind of the, and, and Keenan Allen, we know, is almost always going to get double-digit targets. And that was the main thing for me that I just couldn't climb over that last hump of the volume. And so I, it was like, well, this volume is worth the ex overexposure to this game and ended up going that direction. But ultimately, you want to give yourself, if you're building multiple rosters, give yourself a couple extra outs, uh, a couple extra ways, unless you're just going to say, look, I'll play this like a single entry player. 
and just fully attack one spot. But if you're going to do that, you probably don't want to be attacking the most popular spot on the slate anyway. That was one of my mistakes. The other thing was, well, we'll talk about floating pieces, which is something Zandamir brought up on Saturday. So if you listen to the Saturday podcast, you have a sense of what we're talking about here. But these are the guys who aren't necessarily part of your game environment builds, but are going to be on some of your rosters. So what should we look for in floating pieces? Well, optimally, we should look for some sort of game environment that we still like. So you're not taking the floating piece from the team projected to score 19 points, and you're saying, yeah, I bet this guy's going to have a big game. Always want to demystify things, right? We want to think about touchdowns because touchdowns are our clearest path to upside. And a two touchdown game from a guy is going to be necessary if you're going to say, yeah, he's one of my betting on him as one of my tournament winners. Well, if his team is only projected to score two touchdowns, your chances of getting two touchdowns from that player are significantly lower than if his team is projected to score four touchdowns. So Finding good game environments or teams that still have a good shot at putting up a lot of points is part of what we're looking for from these floating pieces. Another thing I want to look for from a floating piece is the strategy angle that they provide. So Daryl Henderson is an example of one of my floating pieces from this last week. And so for Daryl Henderson, it wasn't so much that I thought he was in some bang up spot. I've preached for what, three, three, four years, however long Darius Leonard has been with the Colts. I've preached that you really don't want to load up on running backs against the Colts. And so the thought with Darius Leonard was, I like this Rams offense so much this year with Matthew Stafford that expecting them to put up points. And then if those touchdowns, if they put up three or four touchdowns and those touchdowns primarily flow through Henderson instead of these other guys, well, now I gain a ton of leverage, right? Henderson's seven, 8% owned, but I'm taking away points from 50% of the field that's not getting touchdowns for their pass catchers. So Henderson is an example of a place where the research isn't the reason why you're playing the guy. Just the strategy is the reason you're playing the guy. You still want it to be a good play, You still want it to be a guy who can put up a tournament winning score, but Henderson, you know, people think of Gurley as a guy who got 27, 28 touches because he was popping off in those David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell years, but Gurley was typically a 17 to 22 touch back, which is about the range that Henderson, if he can ever stay healthy, is going to be in. And so in that role, in this offense, he's going to have some of these two, three touchdown games where they give him the ball close to the end zone. Uh, Analytically, it is easier to move the field passing. It is easier to score touchdowns in the red zone and green zone on the ground. Sean McVay is very aware of that. And especially when Goff was there, they were much likelier to run the ball in the red zone and in the green zone than they were to pass the ball. Uh, So, you know, look for things like that. That's a strategy angle where you say, here's a floating piece that, yeah, the research paints him as kind of a middling play, but he would gain me so much ground toward a first place finish if he hits. So I'm looking for those loading plays that aren't just saying, okay, I'm betting on this guy who's 3% owned and nobody's on him, but also nobody's on this game that he's in. And so how much does that really help you? If this guy goes for 30 points at 3% owned, that's great that week. But if every week you're taking that approach of trying to guess on the random guy from some random game that hits for 30 plus points, you're going to get that wrong so often and it's going to hurt your rosters so much more than it's going to help your rosters over time. That also helps you to start saying, 
you know, when you get into that place where it's like, oh, I want to play all the players. I want to play this guy. I don't want to miss out on this guy. I don't want to miss out on this guy. What if this guy has a big game and I considered him? Well, it doesn't matter if he's in this game that you really should never have considered anyway. If it's negative EV over time to be building on these random pieces that, yeah, they could hit, but they don't do anything for you from a strategy perspective, it's much better to hit on these guys who actually are going to hit a little less often, but when they hit, they're going to give you a big strategy advantage. And so that kind of helps you to narrow down your player pool and where you're looking, what your approach is. Then the last thing I want to talk about on these floating pieces was biased discomfort. I want to look for biased discomfort. So as Anna Mira said earlier about talking to other people and it challenges your assumptions, it challenges your sort of rabbit hole in your own head that you've gone down where, you know, a lot of times you guys will ask, uh, I'll see you guys ask different people on, on Discord and on Twitter, like, how do you handle it when you just kind of keep going down the same path and building the same types of rosters you know, on Friday, Saturday, Sunday? How do you break out of that? Well, one way I've said to do that is to force yourself to build around some other games that you don't plan to build around. You're not going to put that roster in play, but you're just forcing yourself to see things from another angle. But another thing to think about is finding players that you're uncomfortable with because of your biases against them, because of your understanding of that player over time, because of your understanding of that team or that spot or that player's role or whatever it might be. This made me think about the, uh, when I started playing MLB DFS, and that, this was 2015, and I had been, this was uh, pre-kids and and pre-running my own business, so I had a lot more time. And I had probably averaged 100 to 110 Red Sox games a year that I had watched for six or seven years. I hadn't watched any games of any other team. So I knew the AFC East or the AFC East, the um, AL East pretty well because I watched those teams all the time. And I kind of knew the AL Central and the AL West, but I mostly just knew the Red Sox and I knew no National League players or teams. And that was so beneficial for me when I first started playing MLB DFS because I was able to do research and granted the research that other people were doing, the understanding of who the good plays were back then was, was nowhere near where it is now, but I was able to just do research. All I did really was say, well, what does Billy Bean look for in building a team? What does Theo Epstein look for in building a team? And so let me follow those same stats and build my rosters, you know, not based on the the standard stats that people were still looking at then, but some advanced stats to understand who's in a good spot, who has a good matchup. And I had no biases. So I wasn't able to say, you know, I, I've used this example before, but my one of my first slates playing MLB DFS, I stacked a uh, a team against Hyunjin Ryu, who was coming off a season in which he'd won rookie of the year. But all I was looking at was that year's stats and he'd had, you know, several bad starts. And so I was like, oh man, this guy sucks. And, you know, stacked against him and the team did nothing. And I, I dug in deeper and I was like, oh, oh, this pitcher is actually really good. And that was kind of how little I knew about all the teams and players at the time. And there can be a lot of value and benefit to that because you aren't able to say, oh yeah, no, this guy's bad because of this, that, and the other thing. Instead, you're able to look at the underlying numbers, the underlying situation, and see a lot more nuance. And so that allowed me to basically get low ownership 
on good plays on a consistent basis because I didn't have biases that were blocking me from taking on some of these good plays. So this idea of biased discomfort, and I'm going to give you a few examples from this last week. Loading plays that I strongly considered and that I had on zero rosters. First one, Julio Jones. Now, if we are unbiased, if we're biased and I say Julio Jones 2021, the immediate perception is, oh, this guy's dust. This guy's not good anymore. Uh, he's aging. He, injuries have slowed him down. And, you know, let's play out the rest of the year. Maybe that'll prove to be true. But if you came into this season and you were just getting to know the teams and players, what would you have seen? You would have seen a Tennessee team that put up a lot. If you're doing deep research, you, you're going to learn, oh, this team put up a ton of points last year. You do research on Julio Jones as a player and you see what types of stat lines he's capable of putting up. You do research on the Seattle defense and you understand that attacking their secondary is probably going to be viable in this spot. You see a team which is Facing, okay, Seattle had the second highest Vegas implied team total on the slate. Maybe it was the third highest Vegas implied team total on the slate. Tennessee was projected to lose by about six points, which means you expect them to be passing. And Julio Jones and projections systems projected pretty well for his price and was lower owned than AJ Brown. So if you were looking at that for non-biased lens, you would easily be able to say, oh, wow, this guy's a pretty sharp play this week. If you're looking at it from the lens of probably any of us, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I can't play Julio here. And so I kept coming back to Julio with the the very clear reasons why it was a sharp play. Okay, well, the Titans are going to be trailing. They're going to be passing. Nobody wants to play Julio because he disappointed last week. But that doesn't mean that the same thing we talked about last week with Kyle Pitts. His role didn't change. You know, the reason why we could play him didn't change. Uh, And Julio is going to have some big games this year. What I finally ended up doing was AJ Brown very close to my final player pool and didn't pull the trigger on him. But I cut out Julio, who was the more uncomfortable play, even though from a price slash projections slash ownership standpoint, taking those factors into account, Julio was the better play. He didn't make my late week player pool because I was biased against him. I had discomfort in making that play because of biases. The next play on which I had biased discomfort was Cortland Sutton. You guys know how much I love Cortland Sutton. You might love Cortland Sutton just as much as I do by this point. And I couldn't get over the fact that it was his first, in his first game back from the ACL injury, he had two targets. I could not get over that fact. And so for me, I had Fant on my late week player pool. I only played him on one out of eight rosters, but that was only because of strategy. I would have played him on more than that if he were going lower owned. I had Javante Williams on one or two of my rosters. I had KJ Hamler on my late week player pool. He never ended up making it onto any of my rosters, but he was in close consideration on pretty much every roster I built as a floating piece. And I kept coming back to Sutton and then saying, yeah, but he's 5,200. And what I kept thinking was, if he bombs, I'm going to be so annoyed with myself after the fact. And I will pause that thought there because there's one other thing I want to say on that here in a minute. Uh, But I couldn't get over those biases. 
And the discomfort I was feeling was based purely on those biases. We could have painted all of that a different way. And Court and Sutton's a great play. Uh, Jerry Judy's out. Cortland Sutton's their best wide receiver. Cortland Sutton is, listen, Cortland Sutton is a $7,500 DraftKings wide receiver from like a talent perspective. Sure, we didn't know if he was fully healthy yet. Sure, we didn't know what his targets would look like. Sure, he has a new quarterback this year, but we have an extremely talented wide receiver at 5,200 and at sub 1% ownership or at least sub 2% ownership. I went so far as checking Sutton's ownership projections on multiple sites to see what a good play he was and couldn't bring myself to pull the trigger on it because I had biased discomfort against him. I also had biased discomfort against Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, Non-rushing quarterbacks, we like to ask, can this guy throw for 300 yards and three touchdowns? Teddy Bridgewater, I kept saying, ah, he can get up to two touchdowns, but he probably can't get up to three. I don't even remember now if he had three touchdowns or not on Sunday. I think he might've had two, but he had over 300 yards. He had a really good game. And for his price, he would have been a great differentiator. Uh, I had a late week Teddy Bridgewater roster stacked, not with Cortland Sutton, that I didn't pull the trigger on. Uh, Biased discomfort. Once again, the last piece I'll bring up is Rob Gronkowski, who, you know, there's, there's certain players who, if they have a big week, everybody's going to flock to them the next week. There are other players who there's so much biased discomfort in the overall DFS community that even if they have a big week, everybody's going to be like, oh yeah, everyone's going to flock to Gronk this week and they're all fish and he's going to have a bad game. And so nobody actually ends up playing him. And I don't need to get into the reasons why I have biased discomfort against Gronk, but we know what, we know he's older than he used to be. And we know that if you put Gronk onto your roster one week after he has a big game, you just feel like you're being a fish. You feel like you're just giving away money. And so again, not a player I ended up playing. So what I want to look for in these floating pieces is not just game environment and not just strategy, but who are the guys who we're getting at? We are getting at really low ownership because we have deep discomfort in actually locking them onto a roster. Who are the guys we're getting at low ownership? Because if we put them onto a roster, let's say, you know, if you're playing 150 rosters, you don't deal with this, but let's say you play as most of you do three rosters, five rosters, eight rosters, 10, whatever. Who are the guys who leading up to lock, you're like, I cannot leave this guy on this roster. And you're maybe even holding your phone up to kickoff saying, I cannot put this guy on my roster. That's the kind of guy the field is feeling the same way about that biased discomfort can be a great way for us to get low ownership on a really sharp play with a lot of upside. So last thing I want to talk about here is creating realistic expectations. So I almost, I almost moved off of that Cowboys Chargers game on Saturday night and scaled down the number of rosters I was exposing myself to in that game. Because I started saying, what are some realistic ways this game could fail? And it's not hard to paint a picture of a 24 to 17 Cowboys Chargers game. It's not hard to say, maybe touchdowns don't get scored. Maybe the Cowboys just kind of force the Chargers to work underneath a little bit more. Uh, you know, no way to, to bank on all these penalties and touchdowns getting called back. But there are just different ways that games can fail. Maybe the Cowboys run a little bit more. Maybe the Chargers run a little bit more. And so, Basically saying, yes, we're all thinking about the ways this game could pop off, but if that's what we're all thinking about, 
let me create some realistic expectations for ways this game could disappoint. Yes, we're all thinking about the ways that Cortland Sutton could disappoint, but what are some realistic expectations for the ways he could succeed? So always find those places where you can poke holes in the arguments that you're feeling super confident in, where you can challenge your biases and especially where you can where you can find those places where you have biased discomfort and you can start even if it's just tracking those plays and saying which of these plays i I can't bring myself to put them on a roster yet but if i have biased discomfort i'm going to mark this guy down and and check on sunday how this guy did and over time you'll start developing that confidence to say oh you know what i can pull the trigger on these plays because they hit way more often than i would think they're going to hit and on the weeks when you get that right that's tournament winning. And if you start tracking it, then the weeks when you get it wrong, you can say, okay, well, that's fine because I've been tracking this and I know that these biased discomfort plays, they're 2% owned, they're 1% owned, whatever. They're, they're hitting at a much higher rate than that. They're probably hitting 10%, 15% of the time. And that's going to be the difference between being clumped up with everybody else and getting that first place finished. Uh, last thing I'll mention here, and then we'll get to questions is the question I like to ask on some of these is what would this player's ownership be if they had smashed last week? So somebody like Cortland Sutton, what would his ownership be if he had smashed last week? And what would this player's ownership be if he had disappointed last week? Like I talked about with Cup earlier, if Cup had disappointed in week one, what would his ownership be? And that can kind of help you to climb out of that group think where you feel like, oh, I can't play this guy or, oh, I have to play this guy because you can take a bigger picture. Anything we can do that forces ourselves to take a bigger picture view and say, who is this player big picture? Not what did he do last week, but who is this player big picture can help us tremendously. And so when everybody's on a play who had a big game last week, ask, would they all still be on this play if this player disappointed? Sometimes the answer is yes. Look at Najee Harris last week, right? There's going to be the vacuum uh, or the echo chamber where everybody's like, oh, he played 100% of the snaps, 100% of the touches. Uh, he's got a great matchup. So yeah, he disappointed week one, still high-owned week two. But there's going to be those other guys who just because they disappointed one week, their ownership's way down. Because they blew up one week, their ownership's way up. And so if you can ask the reverse of that, what would happen if this guy had been low-owned? What would happen if this guy had been high owned, you can start making much better decisions on those types of things and finding those plays on which you have some biased discomfort that you can actually turn those into your floating plays and the guys who can be big difference makers for your week. With that, you're going to wrap this section and uh, Aaron, I'm going to have you hop on and fire some questions my way. I know we had some good questions um, before we got started on the show. Awesome. I'll jump in with the questions. Uh, was there any ones in particular you wanted me to fire off to you or just uh, start from the top? Yeah, start from the top. I read the ones that came in before we started and uh, I think start from the top. We're good there. All right. This one's from Bill Nuts. How many players uh, from a team or game should be stacked in a 300, 500 person single entry or three max contest? And does that change if the contest is between a thousand and ten thousand uh, entries. Um, does it depend on team slash game totals? Yeah, it depends on. It doesn't depend as much on tournament size, especially in those you know five hundred to ten thousand, because you're still targeting that as we laid out last week, and as Mike laid out in that uh, that. 
text conversation that he and I had that we posted, you're still going to need to score 210 to 220 to 230 a lot of times to win any of those tournaments. So it doesn't matter based on tournament. It does matter based on offense. It does matter based on game environment because so let's demystify things. How many points are you going to get from an offense outside of quarterback? 75 to 95 points. Now, if things go really well for an offense, you can get up to 105, 110, but that's kind of what you're, you, how you can, what you can use as your baseline for determining your answer to this question. Okay, I'm stacking this team. Well, how many, you don't even have to calculate where the points come from. Just say, if this team blows up, right? Am I betting on them having a 20, point game a 28 point game or am i betting on them scoring 40 plus real life points and so if you say well i'm betting on them scoring hoping they score 35 to 40 plus points you know if it's the titans or something then you could say okay well there's going to be a hundred plus points if this plays out the way i'm hoping there's going to be a hundred plus points available and so then how concentrated is this offense if they give the ball to 10 different 11 different guys every week it's harder to get three guys right because if you're putting three guys on your roster you optimally want them to combine for about 90 points well if you're putting three guys on your roster from a team that is going to score 100 DraftKings points and 10 different players are going to contribute you know you're you're going to have to get really lucky for 90 points to be concentrated on three players but if you're on a team like the Vikings or the Titans or the Cowboys with Gallup out then you could say yeah like this team could put up 110 DraftKings points outside of quarterback, and I can get a good 80 points out of these three players. And so then you could say, yeah, I'm I'm willing to take a slight drop. Maybe I don't get the full 90, but 80 points is going to be more than enough. Uh, and so then you can go three players plus a quarterback, right, on a concentrated team where you think they can put up a ton of points. Uh, a team that spreads it out more, then you want to you know be less concentrated in your ownership on that team because it's that much less likely that you're going to capture just this blow-up DFS score from concentrating heavily on that offense. So it's primarily about offense and game environment. And that baseline you should use is total fantasy points that you're going to expect from this team and then say, okay, what share of that can I reasonably get from these players? You don't have to do a bunch of calculations. You can determine that pretty quickly, you know, eyeball glance and say, well, if I'm betting on this team and going in heavy on them. I'm obviously saying that I think they can get 90 to 100 DraftKings points outside of quarterback. So how many of those points are available? Do I need two players here, three players here? What what becomes too much? Once you get up above three players, it's going to be really tough for you to average a 25 point per player pace or a 30 point per player pace uh, because there's just not enough points to go around. So demystify that for yourself a little bit to understand how many points are available. And then you can just say, okay, can these two players get a huge chunk of those points combined? Uh, And then kind of start moving forward from there. All right, next question. This is from ACS204. How does JM find nuggets like Tannehill, AJ Brown, Henry Stacks that are contrary to conventional wisdom? I.e., is there a process that we can use to uncover similar gems that the public won't be in on or just a product of accumulated knowledge bouncing around in your brain? E- um, and I think you also brought up, you know, the Tampa and Bucks in your question, the Tampa and Bucks games, you know, what those scores have done in the past. That's primarily a product of research 
and curiosity. So for me, as I'm digging in, I want to dig deeper and deeper and see what ways we can piece together rosters in such a way that we're finding something that other people aren't finding, things that should be obvious that other people aren't finding. So for me, it's it's curiosity and and then just drilling deeper into individual spots, individual games while building rosters. That's one of the things that w- once we get past next week. So currently I'm still like me, myself, I'm posting the NFL edge. I'm posting the scroll and putting all that together because we don't have the uh, editor team up and running on doing all that stuff just yet, but we're getting all that passed off over the next week or two, which frees up my time more for stuff specifically like this to dive in and sort of find those overlooked combos and those overlooked approaches for you guys. So Um, that's kind of part of what we're trying to free up my time for is for me to do what I'm best at, which is finding things like that uh, so that we as a community have those extra edges of things like that. But yeah, if you're wanting to look for things like that yourself, just be curious and ask questions and drill down. Um, I I have some notes jotted down for, I mean, similar, honestly, similar to last year when I started jotting down notes on the idea for the scroll and what that would look like and how we could deliver that and how it could all come together. Uh, I have some notes jotted down for a correlation tool that we could maybe build next year. I don't know if it'll all come together by next year, but it would be really cool to have something where we could see stuff like that more at a glance. But uh, yeah, for now, it's it's really just drilling down and trying to find that stuff. And um, hopefully I'll, I'll have a lot more of that throughout this season that I can pass along to you guys. All right, this is a, a follow-up from ACS204 here as well. Um, do you always stack with a bringback? And how do you decide whether or not to include a secondary stack? Do you ever worry that stacking will eventually become too popular and become negative, negative EV from a game theory perspective? So the last part, no, because stacking maximizes your opportunity to get the most points possible. It's why in 2015, you could win a tournament with 180, 185 points. It's funny to say that right now when we've had back-to-back weeks with pretty low scoring first place tournament finishes, but you'll see it as we keep going into the season. And as you know, I've, I've encouraged you guys to pay attention to first place rosters, to study first place rosters, to study all the rosters in the top 50, top 100. Like what did they do? Why not? Why did they succeed that week? But just how were they built, right? And what patterns are you seeing? Well, that's always going to maximize your chance of getting those 220, 230, 250 point scores is properly correlating. And and the edge in correlation is, again, that you need fewer things to go right in order to get multiple spots on your roster, right? So there won't be a point where it becomes negative EV to correlate and the more people correlate without the sort of deeper understanding that we always hit on in on OWS in general, but more specifically in inner circle and why we're really here is to hammer in how to do all of these things and why these things work the way they work and how to think in DFS. You know, realistically, most of our competition, it's like when I was on Blender's pod a couple of weeks ago and he said, part of the reason he doesn't mind giving away all of this information is because he realizes that 95% of his listeners are never going to get it. And so uh, the fact that, you know, we're able to kind of get in here with you guys and, and 
turn all of you into people who really get it and are able to put these things together week in and week out and under, understand why they work and how they work uh, and how you're outmaneuvering the field. Just no matter what, a huge chunk of the field is never going to fully understand this or understand how to approach these things and how to properly piece them all together. Uh, the first, Aaron, could you be the first two parts of that question again? Yeah. So, um, do you always stack with a bring back and how do you decide whether or not to include a secondary stack? Okay. So a secondary stack would be primarily based on what the slate gives me as far as what's available in other games. You know, if if it's a slate where one game has a 52 point total and the next highest game total is 46, much likelier to kind of isolate individual floating plays than say, I want to bet on, this player, this player, and this player across a bunch of my builds and and kind of treat these three guys as my single entry plays. And if I get these three guys right, all my rosters are in good shape. Whereas if it's a, a slate where there's a 49 point total and a 51 point total and a 53 point total, or, you know, a 45 point total that we've identified as one with a broad range of outcomes. Like we mentioned last week with dolphins and, and bills, the 48 point total, but it could, it could, be an 80 point game. It could be a 30 point game based on, you know, kind of how the game came together. So 40, 48 didn't tell the full story of what this game could be. But if there's like a lot of spots that could shoot out, that's where I'm saying, okay, and I'm going to stack this game this way. And then I'll bring in, you know, as much as I can from this other game. Then as far as a bring back, it really depends on the, so one team is projected for 28 points and the other team's projected for 24. Team that's projected at 28 is concentrated. And so I am going to stack, I'm going to take three players from this team, take a quarterback and two pass catchers. And I'm going to hope that this quarterback goes for a 30-point game and that these two pass catchers combine for 60 points. So the next question you have to ask yourself is what type of game environment is required for them to do that? Since they're a concentrated offense, they don't need this to turn into a 42 to 35 game in order to pay off, but they probably do need to get above those 28 points. They probably do need five touchdowns scored or a bunch of extra yards for the quarterback plus two pass catchers to hit. So in this, in this example, I'm thinking about like the Vikings, the Titans. So I'm, I'm thinking about players who are already priced up as well, right? So you need big scores. Now, if you're stacking a cheaper quarterback and wide receivers to where, you know, we never want to say, oh yeah, we just need four X. But if, if you're like, okay, these guys can give me 65 points and I'm at five X their salary. We see that a lot, right? A quarterback plus two pass catchers costing about 13 K. Uh, if we get that, that was the bills in 2018. That was Zach Wilson and Corey Davis and Elijah Moore in week one. If we get that, you say, well, uh, I don't need this game to be a huge high scoring game. I just need, I'm not betting on this game environment shooting out. And I guess that's what the answer is, is understand what you're betting on. If you're taking this cheap stack, you're betting on these guys going five extra salary, which they could do in a you know 24 to 21 game. You don't need a bring back from the other side. If you're betting on a bunch of expensive guys, three expensive guys, all paying off their salaries, you probably need this game to stay relatively close. So then the question is, is there a player from the other side you can identify as a likely piece would benefit if this game is high scoring and stays relatively close? So then 
if you have a team on the other side that you know uses 10, 11, 12 players per game on offense, maybe you don't do a bring back, even though you're still projecting kind of a shootout. But if you have a team that you know is a, not super concentrated, it doesn't have to be Titans and Vikings, but a little bit more concentrated, and you're already saying, well, I'm spending a ton of money on AJ Brown plus Julio Jones plus Ryan Tannehill or the you know stack we've talked about in the past, the Derrick Henry plus AJ Brown plus Ryan Tannehill. I'm spending a ton of money on that, understanding that the only way these guys really pay off is if they're scoring 35 to 40 plus points. And the clearest way for them to score 35 to 40 plus is for their opponent to be keeping pace and forcing them to stay aggressive throughout. And so it's basically it's it's not a question of what are the rules, it's a question of what are you actually saying with the roster you're building. So as soon as you're building this roster with three high-priced players on it, you're saying, well, this game is probably going to shoot out, or I'm betting on this roster that this game shoots out, the opponent keeps pace. So it's it's locking yourself out of an extra piece that you could get right or getting that, that one bet correct if you don't take somebody from the other side, if you don't take a bring back. So a lot of times people kind of blindly take a bring back without thinking about what they're actually saying with the players are taking from one side. You're just taking a quarterback plus a wide receiver. Bring back isn't super necessary. A quarterback plus a wide receiver can combine for 55 to 60 points without a shootout occurring. It's once you get to those bigger stacks and then you're saying, well, the only way for, you know, especially once you consider salary, the only way for these guys to, to pay off is for this game to kind of shoot out. Well, if that happens, then I, I'm already getting points from the other side of the game that I'm just not taking by not taking the bring back. So always kind of think critically through it and think about what you're actually betting on with the pieces you're taking and the way you're building it. And then that helps you determine, you know, does a bring back make sense here? Uh, more often than not, if you're like heavy stacking an offense, three guys from an offense, the, the bring back is just, it's free points because you're saying if these three guys hit for a tournament winning score and you're not taking the bring back, you're just leaving points out there that would be easy for you to get because the only way for these three guys to hit for a tournament winning score is for the bring back to also pay off. And so uh, it's kind of thinking backwards from how people typically think about it. People typically think about like, oh, well, I have to play the bring back because that's what you're supposed to do. But it's more about think about the game already having happened and think about these guys actually putting up the score that you are rostering them to put up. And then that allows you to say, okay, how does that actually happen? And am I leaving free points out there by not bringing bringing back on the other side? Um, And that kind of helps you to answer that a little bit more and demystify it a little bit more because you understand why the bring back is valuable and why you want to have it on certain certain types of builds. Awesome. That was a great answer. That was something I've always uh, kind of pondered in my mind when I'm building lineups is, is when to stack and when not to stack. And, you know, I see a lot of winning lineups that don't have that uh, that correlation with it together. And it just it boggles my mind. But now hearing that from you, it makes a lot more sense. So. Um, and, great and another thing that we see too, and this is where I talk about our superior sports knowledge, our superior NFL knowledge. If we can get over bias discomforts and and play those types of plays, then we can also leverage our knowledge because a lot of times we'll see these elite, big name DFS players who kind of play all the sports and just play the strategy of DFS really well. We'll see them do bringbacks kind of across the board. 
and they do it in spots where they don't actually need where it's negative EV for them to do it. Where getting these spots on this one side correct doesn't necessarily mean they're getting a spot on the other side correct. And that's one of the places where we actually have an edge is people just doing the auto bring back, including some of the top, you know, max entry players. And so when you can understand, oh, well, in this spot, I'm not actually betting on something that says I'm getting three points on the other side. Um, then you can say, well, I don't need to bring back here. And you're going to be competing against 150 roster guys who are just kind of automatically playing that bring back as well. So there's certainly edges on both sides once you really understand why the bring back is there and, and when to look for and when not to. All right. Next question is from Ritters. How do you approach weeks like this from a mental standpoint and keep faith in your process? What sort of things are you looking for when you analyzing your process to give you assurance it's on the right track? So this is where NFL is so difficult for a lot of people because a, a, a two a two game sample size is like the smallest sample size that you could be worried about. You know, if you went to week eight, let I mean, I don't know the context of the question, right? But let's say you're playing three rosters a week. And you went to, in fact, it doesn't even matter how many rosters you're playing. Let's say you made it to week eight and you were only playing tournaments and you hadn't had a profitable weekend yet. That's not outlandish. You know, when Blender, when I was on Blender's pod a couple of weeks ago, he, he used the example of like in MLB and NBA, he's gone three plus weeks without having a profitable tournament day. That's 20 plus slates. That's over a full NFL season. But in NFL, because you have to wait a week for the next slate, it feels like, oh, I must be doing something wrong, especially if you go two weeks and, and you know, you're not showing profit or you feel like things aren't coming together. But it's just such a small sample size. And so one of the things you can do is, you know, again, there's also a great way to put into practice a lot of the stuff we talk about is play the showdown slates, play the two game slates, play the afternoon slates, play those in-game drafts on DraftKings, play these other slates that can uh, make your sample size larger and that can give you practice on all of these things we're talking about. If you're just playing the main slate, you got to give it time for these numbers to play out because two slates really isn't enough for anything, you know, for uh, to understand like whether you're playing things right or wrong, or even to fully assess, well, I've, so what I often say is over time, keep track of things and say, okay, are more than 5% of my rosters finishing the top 5%? Are more than 10% of my rosters finishing the top 10%? Uh, are more than 1% of my rosters finishing in the top 1% and so on and so forth. But even at, at two weeks, even if you were playing 150 lineups, that's not enough because if you're playing with the proper approach, the barbell approach, the all the way to the right, all the way to the left approach to like week six, seven, then you can start assessing, okay, how many rosters have I put in? Where did these rosters finish? And am I consistently beating the top of the uh, leaderboard? Am I consistently putting more than 5% of my rosters in the top 5% of tournaments? And that's really the best way to assess process um also the we can put so much pressure on ourselves to get a weekend correct that we end up taking on way too much comfort if you start thinking like this if you start finding yourself in this place where you're like man i'm two weeks in 
I haven't gotten anything right yet. That's one of the most dangerous places you can go into your mind because the, what that funnels you toward is a decision-making tree. In fact, go read in, in the reflection um, in the reflection scroll this week. Mike Johnson has an article about this uh, survivorship. I think he called it survivorship bias, but that you start going into a shell and being like, okay, I don't want to lose a third week in a row. And so you start taking a safer approach, which gives you no shot at first place. And sometimes that caching, you know, you got a week where you cash that can feel really good and boost your confidence and allow you to attack more aggressively the next week. But it's hard to allow that pattern to play out in NFL. What I mean by that is MLB, I would sometimes have that, you know, I'd go two weeks without cashing in a tournament. And then I'd have one day where I just barely cashed. And from that, I would go on a hot streak where I would hit several days in a row because just from cashing, it helped me to feel so much better and to start taking on more risk on the next few slates. In NFL, you only get 18 regular season slates if you're just playing the main slate. So you can't really afford to wait until you can get like a really comfortable, barely cash, and then that kicks you into better play. Plus, then you have a full week to process that, and you might not get back into better play. You might stay in that safety zone. So the main thing is just to not worry about short-term results. Put in a little enough amount on a given NFL weekend that the short-term results aren't going to massively impact the way that you are viewing your approach. So for some of you, that might be 10 bucks a weekend. For some of you, that might be a hundred bucks a weekend. For some of you, that might be a couple thousand a weekend. But if you think you think that you can play 5K and then you have two weeks where you don't cash and you're finding yourself questioning everything you're doing and and feeling like you're just never going to figure this out, well, then 5K is too much. Bump down to 2K. If you can have a weekend where you lose 2K and you're like, well, that's fine. I'll get it next week. That's a good amount for you to be playing. So you got to find that amount to play too, to where you can actually put into practice what we're talking about. Because you're going to make more money playing 2K a weekend correctly than playing 5K a weekend incorrectly. You're going to make more money playing 10 bucks a weekend correctly than you are playing 50 bucks a weekend incorrectly. So you got to find that middle ground where you actually care enough to put in the time. It can't be such a small amount that you're like, oh, well, like whatever happens this weekend happens, but it has to be an amount that you can actually play correctly. Bankroll stuff has never been my strongest thing to speak on just because I, I hit early enough my DFS career to have uh, like a big enough bankroll that I never really had to go through the bankroll grind. So I would recommend talking to Hilo or uh, Mike Johnson or Zandamir about bankroll stuff more specifically. But that is the one thing I can certainly say from a play perspective is if you are playing with the wrong amount of money, if you're playing with too much money, you're going to make less money because you start making safer plays because you're too scared to lose that money. That's why that's why Cubs fan dominates DFS. He just exploits the fact that everybody else is scared to lose the money they're putting in and he's not. And so he's able to take on plays that he's willing to lose, right? He's able to take on plays that other people wouldn't take on and approaches other people wouldn't take on. And the only way you can be willing to lose is not just the training and mindset, but also there is a psychological aspect of how much you're putting into play. You can't think about missed opportunities of uh Oh man, if I like if I'd had 
50 bucks in this week and I would have made so much more because you probably would have played differently if you were playing well because you had 10 bucks in play or 20 bucks in play. So find that middle ground too of like, what's the right amount for you to play? Literally, if you lose it all that weekend, you shrug it off immediately and it's no big deal. Uh, That's extremely important because otherwise you're not going to be able to get to the level where you are playing the right way with consistency. So again, playing with less money is going to make you more money if that enables you to play the right way. I don't know if you tried to do this, but <laughs> you said willing to lose in the same sentence as missed opportunities, which is both Larejo's articles for the week. So um, <laughs> thought that yeah, was pretty. Uh, uh, that, was, uh, that was unintentional, but that's pretty brilliant. <laughs> I'll take. <laughs> um, Blender, I see you in the uh, the Discord here. This question has you involved. Um, feel free if you want to raise your hand and jump up on stage with Jam if you have some time. But um, Jam, building off your podcast with Blender. Um, and Mike's weekly process review, how do you evalu- evaluate your personal ownership projections? And that's from uh, Crossover King 78. How do you evaluate? You cut out a little bit on that. How do you evaluate what? Yeah, let me repeat the question here. Um, how do you evaluate your personal ownership projections? I guess I don't and understand I think- the question. Yeah, so I think what the question is talking about is Mike in his uh, article talked about Cooper Cup being 20% owned. Um, and when Mike looked at it, he was really seeing that he went with DK Metcalf and looking at the ownership, he thought Metcalf would be in, I think, 5 to 8% range. But when Metcalf came in at 16% or whatever it was, um, he realized that maybe he should have been looking at Cup in a different kind of light. Um, is the way Mike uh, described it in his uh, process uh, reflection. Got it. So yeah, I, get, I don't. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to say. I guess. I guess the question more in line to you is when you look back at your projections or your ownership that you have in your lineup, the ones that surprise you, and do you kind of reassess that process of how you came to thinking this guy would be, you know, um, under ten percent, and he comes in, you know, twenty um, percent or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always reassessing things. And I think, so now I actually remember reading this, this question too. And I think that, because one of the things that I was going to say on this one was, for me as a, and and Blender talked about this a couple of weeks ago when he and I were on, on his pod, like it's less important for me in the tournaments I'm playing to have an exact ownership projection. I need to know, who's popular, who's unpopular. Whereas Blender needs to know with accuracy who's popular and who's unpopular. You know, like how fragile is this guy's 12% versus this guy's 12%. If this guy's 12% owned, but he keeps hearing him talked up on mainstream podcasts, well, the chance of this guy maybe being 16, 20% owned are higher. If this guy's 12% owned, but he's not really being talked about anywhere, then it's more about assumptions about how the DFS community is going to react on this play. And maybe he's seven, eight, 9% owned. Uh, and so then you have a clearer picture of exactly where you're pinning these guys. For me personally, so two sides to this, uh, the one side being leading up to the slate, I, I'm not super concerned with exact ownership projections because I'm playing primarily three entry, single entry, and tournament fields ranging from 500 to about 7,000. So it's less important for me to have exactly 
the guy is going to be owned at because it's not like I'm building 150 rosters and determining my exposures based off of that information. But I need to know who's going to be popular and who's not going to be popular and how I can leverage all of that. Um, after the fact, there's a there's always a evaluation process, everything. And it's kind of like when people ask, you know, one of Blender's favorite questions, what stat should I be looking at, uh, you know, for this player or this position or whatever. And it's like, you know, for me, if, if you're, if you're taking like a projections approach, it's like none of the stats, you know, just all of that's accounted for in the projections. If you're wanting to kind of get a, a deeper roots level understanding of these things yourself, it's like, None of these stats because it's all of these stats. Every little thing is just one little tiny piece. So I'm always in evaluation mode to continue building the knowledge that I have. But if it's if if ownership came in way off and I'm seeing that looking back, that just is kind of allowing me to say, okay, so here's something I notice of why this guy was higher owned. Here's something I noticed of why this guy was lower owned. Like what's the psychology of the field? What's the field doing? How are they reacting to things? Uh, so after the fact, yeah, it's there's always an evaluation process for me, but it's not a specific thing so much as it's like just kind of keep um, picking up those those little things. So and, and crossover, if you want to um, – we finished this these questions. If you want to hop up on stage, feel free because I, I I know you've been around. You asked a lot of questions on the chat pod too, so I want to make sure that um, if that was exactly what you were asking, that we're good. But um, if if that wasn't what you're asking, to answer the the other question we just covered, that's how I would view things. Um, but yeah, feel free to hop up on stage when we finish these questions too, if you want. All right, we have a couple more here. This one's from Mwek. Um, hope I'm pronouncing everybody's name right. Um, this is a defensive question. Can you walk me through some correlation differentiation strategies and how to fit defense in with the rest of a thoughtful roster? And when is it okay to not correlate with the defense? It's often okay to not correlate with a defense. The There's kind of two approaches you can take with a defense. One is best defenses and pay attention to high low for that pay attention to majestic for that best defenses and optimally finding the best defenses that are also overlooked the other way is to just go pure leverage and that is to say if everybody is stacking this offense what's the way this offense could fail well, if this offense fails, the defense is probably having a nice game against them. And so basically to get that one-two combo punch, as I talk about, where not only is 30, 40, 50% of the, the field getting their rosters hurt by this offense disappointing, but you're also getting the extra points from the reason this offense disappointed, which is the defense going against them. But for me, the whole, you know, there's a lot of, Levitan, Raybon, these guys have done incredible off-season research over the years where they'll put together, you know, this type of thing won the millimaker this often and, and this thing works this percentage of the time and so on and so forth. And what they're often getting at is, you know, over a massive sample size, if we could play out each slate a thousand times, this is what works most often. But that's in like, you know, that's not taking into account each individual team out of 32 teams. So, you know, the, the idea of like a defense correlates to the running back 
that doesn't necessarily mean that applies to every single team. That doesn't mean that just because you're playing a defense, you need to play the running back. Uh, it doesn't mean that because you're playing a defense, you can't play. You know, I've talked about this. A receiver, the opposing team, is probably putting up a better game if your defense is scoring a defensive touchdown because now they're, that team is down even more, right? If you roster a defense, you're not hoping for them to only give up 13 points. Who cares? That's four fantasy points. You're hoping for them to get some sacks, some interceptions, force some fumbles, and optimally to score a touchdown. Well, if they score a touchdown, now this other team is behind getting the ball right back and having to throw more. So, you know, the the whole defense correlation thing, it gets pretty muddy. But the the main thing for me is like, I want to play defenses that have 15 to 20 point potential, which would be defenses going against... Uh, you know, if the Patriots had been three or 400 cheaper last week, I would have just had them on all of my rosters. Uh, I couldn't bring myself to get up to 3,700 when the Saints and Steelers were 3K and 3,100. That, you know, you could also take that to say, well, other people are going to be thinking that way as well. So carve out that extra salary. Um, but, you know, teams that have a good pass rush going against a bad offensive line and or a young quarterback. Those are the places where you can get these big fantasy scores. So look for those in, especially in overlooked spots because defense is less predictable than say running back, right? So the 20% owned defense, that's a little bit better than the 3% owned defense is going to make you less money over time. The 3% owned defense, even though they project a little bit lower and they might have a huge game a little bit less often, they're going to be a lot more valuable when they do have that big game. Uh, so that's that's the one thing I'm looking for. And the other thing is I'm always looking for spots where a popular offense could fail. Like let's say that let's say that the Saints, instead of Jameis throwing all those touchdowns in week one with no yardage, let's say he'd also th- thrown for 300 yards. Well, then he would be popular against, let's say Callaway had had a huge game in week one. Well, now Jameis and Callaway are popular against the Panthers, but you can say, well, this is a pretty fragile, popular play, and Jameis is mistake-prone, he can take sacks. So now you play the Panthers' defense saying, not only would these Jameis and Callaway rosters benefit you from failing, but you get doubly doubly benefited, you get double the benefits from taking on the defense that is causing them to fail. All right, Jim, this is going to be the last one. Um, This is from Hona Peanut. Um, And he said, um, do the game uh, you discussed with Scott Barrett on the Fantasy Points pod, game theory principles on how to attack slates strategically. How do you apply that to other slates, such as after, such as like the afternoon slates? It's, I mean, it's always, you're thinking about, what it takes to get to first place. So you're thinking about what games are available, what other people are going to be doing. You know, afternoon slates, you're dealing with four games a lot of times, sometimes three games as we get to the bye weeks. So the I've talked about this. The smaller the slate, the more valuable it is to put all of this that we talk about directly into play. I talked about last week that game changer when I had on Thanksgiving last year had nothing to do with me picking players just had to do with me saying, well, there's only two games. So let me just bet on the different things than everybody else is betting on within reason, right? It was Texans versus lions. We know how bad the lions defense is. Sean Watson was the Texans quarterback. That's not the place where I'm going to say, I'm going to be totally different. 
that's the place where I'm going to say, yeah, I'll take Deshaun Watson. And instead of just taking Deshaun Watson plus Brandon Cooks, or instead of just taking Deshaun Watson plus Will Fuller, I'll take Deshaun Watson plus Brandon Cooks plus Will Fuller. Okay, so now this is not the spot where I'm differentiating. So over to the Washington versus Dallas game. How do I differentiate here? Well, if everybody's on C.D. Lamb, Michael Gallup, I'll take Amari Cooper. If everyone is on Logan Thomas, I'll take Dalton Schultz. If everyone's on Zeke, I'll take Antonio Gibson. There you have it. That you know ends up being a first place finish. Another week, it could be a last place finish. But it's just saying, basically, the, the fewer options there are to choose from, the more concentrated things are going to be, and the easier it is to just pull all these levers that say, okay, well, what is the what is the more fragile part of the popular plays? So in that example of the Thanksgiving slate, the most robust part of the popular plays was going to be the Texans offense against the Lions. I'm not sure. Now, if I were playing in a 20,000 entry tournament, 50,000 entry tournament, then I might say, well, I really don't see the Lions doing well here, but let me bet on the Lions offense and let me bet on the Texans offense disappointing because now it's even harder to get to first place. As you get into smaller field tournaments, you say, look, the Texans, that's the most robust. That's the likeliest thing to happen is them having a big game against the Lions. That's not where I'm going to try to be different. Let me go over to the other game and see what's fragile over here. That's where I'll try to be different. And so, uh, yeah, it's actually just these afternoon slates, the two-game slates, the showdowns, the in-game drafts. They're great. That's why I say they're great ways to put this stuff into practice in real time. If you haven't listened to, uh, I wish I knew what episode number it was, but it's on the the one-week season podcast feed, which is the free public podcast feed. But it was in week one before the first inner circle session, and I talked about exactly how to attack those in-game drafts on DraftKings, applying all these strategies. And it's it's relatively easy to make money on those, and it's incredible practice on all this stuff we talk about of just figuring out how to correlate and do things differently than the field. You know another great way to practice this? Uh, read Lex's uh, underdog... Uh, under underdog underowned article that we put it in the scroll last week. And I think we're going to get it into the reflection scroll this week and start getting it out earlier in the week. But these underdog weekly drafts for battle Royale, people are just drafting like it's a season long draft, taking the best players. And you can go in there and say, the way these drafts work is you're drafting against five other people, but you're drafting a team that's going to compete against 5,000 entries for a top heavy payout structure. So you want a team that can finish first place out of 5,000 entries. What's going to get to first place out of 5,000 entries? Not the team that just takes Christian McCaffrey because he's the top rated running back. And then Justin Jefferson, because he's the top rated wide receiver still remaining. And then Kyle Pitts, because he's the best rated tight end still remaining. And then Tom Brady, he's the best rated quarterback remaining, right? Like that's not going to get you to first place out of 5,000 entries. So this last week I was drafting... Mike Evans. I drafted Mike Evans on like five out of my eight battle Royale rosters because Mike Evans was like the 20th wide receiver listed, which means nobody's drafting him. So if he has a 40 point game, you're one of the only people getting that game. If the, you know, if the 12th or 13th running back on the board has a 30 point game, you're the only person getting that game. So just find these little ways where you can put these things into practice and start learning how all of this works. Uh, and so again, smaller slates is a great way to do that and a great way to gain that edge. 
No more questions for tonight. We're we're at that hour 30 kind of mark that we want to kind of try to keep this to. So if there's anything else you want to wrap up with, otherwise uh, we're good. Yeah, I want to cross over. If you want to add anything, feel free to raise your hand. Um, otherwise, I think we are. Yeah, there we go. We got a question from uh, not crossover. I don't mind. You guys, if you guys want to jump out, I can put in another 10 minutes or so. Um, and yeah, and so any, anybody listening on the the podcast, you know, you guys keep listening. Anybody who's in here live right now, feel free to hop out. But I do want to get to a couple questions um, if we have any. So uh, BSA has a question. So let's bring him up if I can figure out how to do that. Aaron, do you want to? Yeah, I got BS. Yeah, I got BSA invited. Uh, BSA, you got to accept the invite. It should come on like the top of your Discord. All right. All right. There he is. Uh, JM, really quick. So I mainly, and why I subscribed to your um, page is because I'm a mainly a single entry player. Uh, to give you an example, <clears throat> this last Sunday, I had seven entries ranging from 50 up to 200, 300 single entries. And I'm playing just strictly one lineup, the same lineup in all of them. And I also play the 150 power sweep three entry, but I also play only one lineup but i'm putting the same lineup in all the contests is is that good or is that bad or what do you think so in, in the the power sweep is usually about five thousand entries there's a couple power sweeps there's one that's like two thousand entries and one that's five thousand right are you in the five thousand entry one? Oh shoot i can't hear you in the in the I, I would probably play very differently, not very differently, but I would play differently in a 50 entry tournament versus a 5,000 entry tournament because a 50 entry tournament is very much what we term those bankroll building contests where you can essentially build a really sharp roster that just kind of zigs in one little place where everybody else is zagging and bet around what you like the most on the slate. And so if, if last week, if it was Dallas and chargers, then overstack that game to do something a little bit different. If it wasn't that game, recognize that in a 50 entry, even a 200, 300 entry, single entry, most people are going to embrace that comfort and they're going to take the game that's most obvious so if you if you were heading into last week and you're like you know what i like this game but i actually like arizona minnesota more and you stack around that game all of a sudden you don't you don't have to worry about strategy anymore just fill out fill out the rest of your roster with what you like the most whereas in the power sweep where you had to beat five thousand or two thousand whatever it is uh it's that much more difficult because you're going to have enough people who are building in ways that you have to consider in your builds. So I would I would term it negative EV to put that 50 to 200 to 300 you know entry field roster into the 5000 or even 2000 field tournament because what is going to be required to win one of those smaller fields is different from what's going to be required to win one of those larger fields and and just as importantly in those smaller field ones you can actually build in such a way because a lot of people take large field tournament thoughts and over apply them to these smaller ones. So you can actually build in such a way that you're going to cash in that tournament. 
five times in 18 weeks, six times in 18 weeks, seven times, eight times in 18 weeks, and still have an equal shot at first place, the people who are building crazier lineups. So those smaller field tournaments, those bankroll building contests, you can take a much heavier floor plus ceiling approach because even when you miss first place, you can be in position to make money, um, which is why I love those tournaments so much, especially you know for our community. I think there's, there's so much sharp knowledge in our community that you guys could you know do really well in those tournaments over time. Um, and you're able to see those results play out more quickly. Whereas the other ones, you you have to stop worrying about floor in those larger field tournaments, even if it's 2,000 to 5,000 entries. Uh, and and it's pretty critical that you're not taking that floor plus ceiling approach. You don't have to take that floor plus ceiling approach in the smaller field ones, but you're going to make more money over time because your shot at first stays the same, but your shot at cashing when you don't get first goes much higher. Uh, whereas in the larger field ones, you can't worry about cashing. You can only worry about first place. And that's kind of a different approach. Um, so I don't know. Ho- hopefully that helps. you have anything, anything else on that? Uh, if not, we'll bring in Tenacious D, uh, old friend Tenacious D. Come on up on the stage. There we go. Hey, Jim, can you hear me all right? Hear you good. Perfect. Thanks for uh, sticking around, taking a few extra questions. Really appreciate it. Um, and for, for the platform and everything you guys do. Um, wanted to ask you about at least my experience past three or four years. This past week was a very unique slate in terms of how all of those games that everyone was you know really looking at taking off were in the afternoon. And the whole idea or this um, the, the notion of being able to leverage that uh, expectation to an advantage and actually um, use that in a way against the field by, uh, you know, t- may- maybe making taking a few of your roster spots on those early games um, in a contrarian way or, or, you know, taking a wrinkle here or there, a good Example would have been, you know, your Henderson play instead of playing Cooper Cup or, or even Robert Woods for that matter, or playing them together. And then seeing how those rosters are doing before those afternoon games kick off. Uh, so that way you, you're basically then playing your slate with in your rosters with more knowledge than the field uh, before those afternoon games lock. And you have more information at your hands to make the necessary tweaks. Um, I didn't know. I, I wanted to see if you could elaborate on that and and maybe comment on the the applicability of it to those bankroll building tournaments, or if you see that more as a uh, something that could be wielded more in a uh, multi, mini multi entry or mass multi entry tournament. Thank you. What do you uh, before you hop off? What do you primarily play? Um, I'm I'm primarily doing the single entry three max, and I'm yeah I'm trying to keep it. Uh, I, I'm 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 more of a overly analytical guy, so I'm I'm trying to keep the field size under five thousand, but I'm I'm finding it a little more stimulating if, if the if I'm trying to build a roster for you know a field that's under five hundred people, it's it's just not as fun. I'm finding 
So for instance, I was <laughs> until you, uh, your, uh, last second update to your, your player block. I was all over Gaseki and then it was like, Oh man, nobody else sees this. And then I was really doubting whether it was a good play or not. And then sure enough, you, you uh, added him to your, your player grid. And that was all the vindication I needed that, Hey, this isn't crazy to do this for a, I think it was like a 4,000 entry, a single entry lineup where I just wanted to, I wanted to leverage off of Waddle and Josh Allen. So I put in Josh Allen with Emmanuel Sanders and Gasecki. And that was my, one of my rosters and that had the late game players on it, obviously didn't work out, but, um, that was kind of where my head was at um, that earlier game, trying to leverage off of the field uh, before those late games kicked off. Yeah. So I would, and I like the way you frame that too, about why you play the tournaments that you play. And I think that's important for everyone to recognize, right? We always say, what are your strengths and then how do you play to those? So pay attention to that and identify that over time. That's super valuable and important. Um, and, you know, not not surprising from like if, if we see somebody like we see Tenacious D and we would see him in the OWS chat pod and, and in um, in collective and OWS collective, like the people who are involved and and kind of asking questions and thinking about this stuff are the people who are picking this up more and more quickly and kind of keep getting these sharper and sharper things. So, uh, again, the more you're thinking about these things and questioning these things and challenging yourself, the, the more you're going to pick up. Um, in terms of the late late swap thing, you know, I like the way that Sonic described it last week. He said, like, it's like you're playing a poker tournament and you get to see the flop and everybody else could, but 98% of the field isn't taking advantage of that. So for me, the smaller the contest, the less I would worry about it, just because of what we were just talking about, right? That the uh, smaller contest, the bankroll, the true bankroll building contests, you know, 500 entries and below, 300 entries and below, those types of contests, you're primarily going to be focused on like the, the sharpest plays. So you still want to identify after the early games, where you're at, if you have dead rosters, if you, you know, if you were betting heavily on Cowboys chargers last week on a roster where two of your early players failed, well, it's probably pretty pointless in any tournament size or style to leave that Cowboys chargers stack intact because you know, so many other people are going to have it. And now you're behind the field because you had two early guys who missed. Um, but I would worry more about it in large field stuff because that's where you kind of start thinking more and more about what is it really going to take to get to first place? And by large field, I mean, really, even when we're talking about like the, the 2000 entry power sweep or the 5000 entry power sweep or any of those and, and up. Um, and so that's not something that I am, especially, you know, since I spent so much time as a single entry player, it's not something that I can speak on with expertise or authority, but I do think that it's something that you just always want to think about, right? And you don't want to the, – the biggest danger is you have the guys who hit early, and so then you play things really safe on the later slate. You still have to recognize how many people you got to beat to get to first place. If you got to beat 5,000 people to get to first place, that's still a lot of people you have to beat to get to first place. And so there is that element of saying, I don't want to – 
go into a shell just because I had two players who hit early, but you also can recognize like, okay, I don't need to change things on this roster. I am now ahead of everybody else who's building around this game. I'm building around. Um, or if you were building like some super risky stuff on the late slate on the, on the afternoon games, then you could say, all right, do I want to adjust this? Like maybe move the risky stuff over to this other roster that missed on the early plays and then take the safer stuff from that roster and move it over to this roster. Uh, so yeah, to me, it's more of a, uh, obviously case by case basis. And the biggest trap that can come is thinking yourself out of money where you, uh, you know, basically get too cozy and too comfortable. And so you don't take on that extra risk, uh, heading into the late games because the early guys did well. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting thing and, and we'll get that a lot because, you know, with flex scheduling and whatnot, uh, and a lot of good teams on the West Coast now, a lot of higher scoring teams, we're going to get a lot of afternoon games that are higher scoring than the early games. And the main thing for me is just being aware of the fact that you do have outs and you do have flexibility and that it's a tool that you can leverage that a lot of the field won't be leveraging and, and you can kind of gain some extra ground in that way. So with that, we are going to get out of here. I obviously, as always, massively appreciate you guys hanging out with me. Um, it's a pleasure to be able to do this. It's a lot of fun. So I will see you. It was kind of a, a, an awkward uh, awkward ending there, but I will see you guys um, on the site throughout the week. I'll see you guys in Inner Circle on Saturday. I will see you guys in the Oracle on Saturday. And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards at the end of week three.